In this episode of The Interface, I speak with Jason Ellison, Principal Engineer for Amphenol Communications Solutions. Jason is based out of Pennsylvania and has been with Amphenol for over 10 years. We talk about his work on the XMAX2 high-speed backlink connector series, which was developed for 112 gigabits per second applications. We talk about how complex data center system architecture is and how difficult it can be to explain it to the layperson, like me. We talk about signal integrity engineering and how he dedicates time every week to make sure he's up to speed on the latest developments. We talk about his time in the Army National Guard, being deployed overseas, and the lessons he learned about self-motivation, teamwork, and respect. We talk about growing up and observing his uncle as a tinkerer and how he's become the tinkerer for his kids and their toys. And we discuss his Desert Island album, book, and movie. This is The Interface. So you're a pro at this. I should be learning oh, from you. I wouldn't call me a pro, but at least I don't have jitters about it. I don't have, I don't get nervous about it anymore, but I still, I still have, you know, I still have things to work on. <laughs> well, let's see if I can get you to get jittery here. Let's, let's see if I can do it. <laughs> okay. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, I'm just kidding. So anyway, first, Jason, thank you for agreeing to do this today. I appreciate you coming on. And I just wanted to start off by asking you if you could tell me and, and our listeners what it is that you do. So uh, my primary focus at Amphenol is to develop and support the XMAX2 product line. It went really well and, you know, we took it from concept to prototype in about five months, which was nice. And now the products proliferated. So now my job in that one is to have a clean proliferated portfolio with lots of customer support pools, if you will. Mm -hmm. So that, that would be the main thing that I am required to do on the daily. Uh, other than that, I support Amphenol signal integrity team with uh, tools, general modeling support, customer interactions, measurement support when needed, just really anything uh, SI. And I also try to do a lot of uh, research because if you if you're not staying on top of things that are current, you easily get left behind. And I see that constantly in the industry. Even folks that are considered some of the best, you talk to them and they don't know some of the new fundamentals that have come out. So to to uh, do research is really a fundamental part of the job that I um, I try to put at least a half hour in. Well, I should I guess I can't say a half hour per day, but more like an hour and a half per week into just reading papers and seeing what makes sense, trying to check out professional presentations from trade shows also. Let me go back to the one of the first things that you mentioned then is XMAX. So for for people who don't know, can you just describe that product and its intended use and applications and and just a little bit about XMAX just in general, as you said, you, you know, working on the, the portfolio and how to promote that. So, yeah. So XMAX two, well, starting with XMAX. So XMAX was conceived, I believe around 2009, they developed this for a 25 gig application for backplanes and direct mate orthogonal switches and servers. In addition, this time frame, cable backplane was a thing. So when mm -hmm. I say backplane, it's uh, some kind of daughter card that has compute or switching or storage on it or acceleration, I guess, anymore. And it gets plugged into another larger board 
that is called the backplane. And that goes to some other connector on the backplane, which goes to then another daughter car, which again, could be any of those things I just said. It could be compute, could be storage, it could be switching or you know some other thing that requires data. So that's, that's the general idea of a backplane and it's governed by a whole bunch of industry standards. Right. IEEE, OIF, I guess in some cases, PCI Express and SAS, but mostly we live in the IEEE and OIF world. So that's a, and then there's this direct made orthogonal where the boards are, instead of having three boards, daughter card, backplane, daughter card, we have two boards, which are perpendicular to each other. Mm. And the reason they have that is they'll have two of these connectors on the, on the orthogonal board. And so the idea is you can, you can stack these things in an array. And so every board can talk to each other. Um, oh, okay. And it improves airflow. Then the cabled version of that is just simply replace the, the middle interconnect with a cable instead of a, a connector and a backplane. And it could be an orthogonal connect a cable system if you just twist it which is not terribly easy. These things are like iron pipes sometimes, hmm. but um, like especially if they're short, but you can still do it. I've seen the application. Sometimes we, we wire them in a way where they come out at 90 degrees instead of straight across. So it's, there's lots of things that can be done. So that's Examax in general and Examax, well, Examax was developed for the 25 gig uh, NRZ application and Examax 2 was developed for the 112 application. So it's backwards compatible with XMX, which is really important because XMX was the most popular connector on, in the market for 25 and 56 gig. So to have something made compatible that gets us to 112 was a huge advantage. I mean, yeah. some customers just came in and they glanced at the, at the data and said, well, if it works anything like the last one, we're good. And they just take it. I mean, it wasn't like that initially, but uh, we do have plenty of that. And now that we have many XMX2 customers buying the, like have design, sign the connector in and have, are actively buying it, it seems the message is out and we get a lot of easy wins now, which is, which is nice. And now the challenge is just simply to provide all the different form factors our customers want and to have uh, adequate resources available for them to do all the designs that they want to do. So this thing basically will take boards and almost make like a club sandwich then, huh? With the connector could, in between. You could do that. <laughs> yeah, you can do a, That would be that was actually the application I forgot, the mezzanine application. The yeah. XMX does that too. It's their sandwich together. Yeah, we do that one too. Bear with me here. This is my, as I pointed out before we started here, this is why I'm not the technical guy. So I take it and I hear you go oh, board to board with a connector in the middle. I'm thinking, oh, kind of like a, a turkey club. Very nice. Oh, my gosh. I uh, totally get it. I mean, explaining yeah. this stuff to anyone that's not involved in it is so difficult because the language barrier, I might as well be speaking, you know, Portuguese and Chinese at the same time. Yeah. Because uh, yeah. you just don't get into these words. <laughs> in a normal conversation ever. I mean, a, a data center is so complicated. Even people that work in it don't yeah. even understand how all the pieces in it. For someone like yourself who, you know, has been an engineer in this field for a while, electrical engineer, um, but even ones that are have been there, you know, twice as long as you, I can't imagine you ever really know everything, do you? It's almost impossible. No, never. Yeah. Never. Yeah. There's so many pieces. Yeah. I mean, 
you know, if you have someone that's really good at the architecture part, which is the big picture, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're thinking about how I'm going to get heat out of the system, protocols, you know, how much memory I need and delays and things like that. And know like how fast stuff is going to go node to node in the big picture. Then you got on the complete other side of the spectrum, you got guys like me who, who worry about how much tin or gold or, pl- or palladium is mm. on, is on a piece of metal how how drill bits are going into the into the boards that are in these things and how what the what the profile of the of these little tiny copper strips are and uh, and then there's completely other stuff with mechanical you know right, right. how the chassis are aligning where the heat's coming and going from and with the heat you have entire business models constructed on how do i get heat out of a data center right. i mean there's multiple different businesses you have those people that that work on it from a chemical side with immersion cooling. And then you have people that work on it from more of a traditional side where it's massive compressors and uh, huge, you know, heat sinks and heat pumps trying or not heat pumps, but you know, ways of getting thermals out. There's so many different solutions. So to know everything really is probably impossible, <laughs> Yeah. but at least, at least um, there's enough people that I, I, I mean, obviously there's enough people that architect that have, a little bit of knowledge of the whole thing that can put it together. Thank goodness for them. <laughs> and if only there were a company that could help solve the plethora of these problems from an interconnect standpoint. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Uh, joking aside, though, I mean, as you're talking about this, too, I'm thinking, you know, you're talking about how complex this is and, and how these these are big, big issues to solve, whether it be from uh, architecture, whether it be from the mechanical side, whether it be from from your side, from a signal signal integrity standpoint, and you have access in 2022 to these incredibly complex tools and and simulation modeling systems and all that sort of stuff to do that. Can you imagine, you know, 50, 60 years ago, at the dawn of the electronics age, trying to figure all this all this stuff out at the same, you know, you're like oh, I you, could you're imagine, laying uh, the track in front of you as you're going, you know, eighty miles an hour. I mean, I I lived it actually for in the beginning. I start when I started in two thousand seven. Uh, we had some tools, thankfully, but it wasn't much different than what they had back in the sixties. We had TDRs and VNAs, and that was it. We didn't have modeling software, so literally we would be in a lab under a microscope with a knife making wow. changes to our parts trying to see what would happen so you know there's a they some people call it cut and try we were literally cutting and trying so we would right. m- manipulate the copper with a knife or or something make a bna measurement you know document it the best we could with whatever kind of camera we had which wasn't you know that good in 2007 and then do it over and over again until we got something that worked and then try to put that into a design. So no, I, I can imagine it. And basically all it does is slow everything down. <laughs> yeah. Let me switch gears though, too, because I know you have a lot of experience and still do in, in signal integrity engineering or as a signal integrity engineer. So tell me a little bit about what that really is and the importance of it, especially for the products that, that you work with. I guess there's really two types of SI engineers, if I can bucket them. I think signal integrity in general is if you can put a measure on signal quality of something, 
um, that some component or channel that is intended to pass serial data, which is an important distinction because there's also RF engineers. Mm -hmm. So people often think RF and SI are the same. And RF deals with narrow band, which is just like, a, you know, one target frequency with some amount of frequencies around it. Whereas signal integrity is about 10 megahertz up to some given frequency. And that's really the difference because the, the way that you engineer is different based on those bandwidths. So an SI engineer will take some kind of component or channel and put metrics to it and say the quality of this thing is uh, you can be observed through X, Y, and Z. And some of these metrics are diagnostic, mm -hmm. meaning they don't really matter in terms of the end use. Instead, they matter how to fix the problem causing the end use to fail. And then um, that would be more like what we do at Amphenol. We use mostly diagnostic stuff because the signal integrity of a component is important, but it really doesn't matter in a channel. You, it matter, The channel is really what matters in the end. So you know, we do things like time domain reflectometry, S-parameter masks, um, converting from frequency to time to look at little tiny pieces of our products and each component of our products because you know, our our customers just see it as one piece where we see right. it as a as a union of a whole bunch of different ideas and then there's the folks that do channel modeling which is a completely different thing and has all of its own i shouldn't say it's completely different but it's quite different in terms of of how you approach the problem you no longer look in terms of s parameter masks you have to look in terms of bit error rate and how you, how you gather bit error rate is not, it, there's not just one way to do it. There's statistical, there's something you can do, which is some kind of, I guess you can call it closed loop, where you take all the information that's currently available and you do no extrapolating and you say, okay, well, this is the best that this channel can do uh, with the information that I currently have. Or you could do it statistically where you you take that information and put some bell curves on it, some Gaussian information and say, well, this is the best we think, but if we extrapolate this down farther, then we can see that we can get some other expectations. So you get into that and how you do it statistically or in the other way I talked about, which is more like the closed loop uh, is not, there's not just one way to do it. Yeah, it's still, it's still kind of like a developing field. I can see now why you need a couple hours a week to stay on top of all this. I mean, <laughs> and be honest here, how much were you holding back from a, uh, a technical standpoint as you were going through that? Yeah, I tried. I, I was, I was thinking, well, this, this term can't be used. <laughs> uh, if I start to talk uh, about uh, some other things, it's going to just be a distraction. So yeah, it is, hard. It is it's hard to communicate what you do. I mean, when I, yeah, my, the first couple of years of showing, like, I'd be excited about what I, I do, and I'd come home, and I'd show my wife, like, check this out. This is what I did at work today. She's yeah. like, oh, I'm seeing our lines. Like, yeah. you just draw lines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm kind of with your wife on that. Um, and, But, again, I get it, right? And that's kind of the cool part of, of what you do. You are an expert in this field that most people have, they're, they're completely clueless about. I mean. Uh, I am, and now I'm. I don't want to speak for everyone, but I'm sure some people who listen to this are like, "Oh yeah, I, I know what he's talking about, and I can see it." But um, I'm assuming there's probably some too, like myself, going. He said some words that I could probably figure out how to spell, but I have no idea what they mean. So, 
yeah. you're in the majority. I mean, yeah. it's even, even I, I talked, I have a, you know, some friends I went to college with that do signal integrity and I asked them about if they use some of the techniques that I'm aware of and they don't even know they exist. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure it's uh, similar for me too. They could, they could bring up some things that I wouldn't be aware of also. And so it is very niche. Yeah, no, but it's very cool. I dig hearing you and, and other signal integrity engineers talk about it. I think it's it's pretty wild. I really do. So so let me let me go back now. Did you grow up in Pennsylvania? Yes, uh, the Nanticoke area, which is near Wilkes-Barre in Scranton. Okay. And so as a kid, I mean, I know you're into this now, but as you were growing up, what were some of the things that you enjoyed doing as activities? Did you like to tinker? Um, did this Was this inevitable to get into this field? I didn't do a lot of engineering as a kid. Anico was a, was a very unique place. So uh, lots of riding bikes in town, yeah. playing paintball, basketball, any kind of pickup sport. I didn't went to the park a lot, things yeah. like that. But simultaneously, I mean, things that, you know, would trigger me into that I like this kind of stuff would be I was always fooling around with computers, mm-hmm. be it like, you know, the video games or my parents got a computer and I would just, you know, mess around on, on the internet with dial up and, uh, and not just, you know, going on websites, but checking out like code, like the code behind it. Mm. Cause we were all poor and we used to do all kinds of weird stuff, like get free internet. Mm-hmm. And with free internet, you had, you had ads popping up all the time. So we'd, yeah. we'd get these hacks to, you know, kill the ads and we'd always, you know, in school we would be sharing our, Hey, we heard of this, this new free internet things up, give it a try. And that, or we would be screwing around with these uh, calculators that we, we got the TI 89s. Yeah. We'd be trying to <laughs> have them uh, basically put cheat sheets in them. Cause you know, at, at the time the, the teachers didn't know that you could have text in these calculators. So we got, we had programs that would have the answers to the stuff in there and, or we had video, we'd have video games on our calculators, you know, like, so there was, there were definitely some signs that you were inquisitive. I, I you were enjoyed. a tinker. Yeah, I was yeah. definitely a tinker. And I, I liked, I liked to see how things worked. Like I would, I would always uh, repair my own bike, which I don't know if that's common with, with kids, but because there was no other option for me, mm-hmm. it was either fix what I have or I don't have it. And so there was a lot of that, you know, so I think, I think that definitely played its hand, but, but also, I mean, it's just kind of in my blood, my uncle, he never had a real job and well, I shouldn't say never, he had one real job and he always studied, uh, electrical engineering on his own. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, when he was growing up, he used to take apart television sets and he'd take the capacitors out of them and stick them on things and see what he could blow up with them. Or he, <laughs> He made his own oscilloscope at one point, which I'm still blown away by. You know, this was in the, in the fifties, he somehow made his own oscilloscope and I don't know how he did it. And he would study physics on his own, which is just mind blowing to me. I don't know why anyone would, you know, do that. But, and, and then when he had this job I'm referring to, it was an assembly job where he got paid by the part. And so he had, you know, he had uh, some quota, like a hundred pieces of dolls he had to make every day. Mm Mm-hmm. And he would sit there bored out of his mind assembling these dolls and notice that he had access to the gears in the machine. And so he, at his house, he built a different like set of gears, replaced the the gears in the machine, and he was able to get his job done twice as fast. So he met his quota at noon and would leave every day. (laughs) And what, 
And what ended up happening was his managers or line leader or something said, Hey, how you doing that? My uncle, you know, nice guy showed him. So they fired my uncle and uh, put the, put that set of gears on all the lines and then made people work <laughs> and doubled the quota for everybody. Oh, and so he would, at that point he was done and he just, uh, he did his own thing for the rest of his life, helped remodeling houses and basically doing anything you could imagine in a house by himself and yeah. just made a living off of it. <laughs> so That's I kind of have that uh, technical affinity in my in, in my uh, <laughs> DNA, if you will. Yeah, I can see how having that in your DNA and and uh, and being an engineer would certainly be useful. That's for sure. So where did you go to college? I'm assuming you studied this in college too. Yeah, I started at uh, Penn State Wilkes-Barre mm-hmm. and then went to, to a community college for a little bit. And then, uh, then I got deployed overseas in the middle of my schooling and then went to Penn State Harrisburg to finish the, the, the degree. And I studied yeah, electrical engineering the whole time. First of all, thank you for your service as well. You were in the Army National Guard, right? Yep. Army National Guard, Fire Direction Center for the, for the artillery, 109th Field Artillery, Bravo Battery. You know, that what that is, is shooting the big guns, which is just fun, the howitzers. Yeah. And my job was to tell the howitzers where to point. I see. Um, yeah, <laughs> important job. Yeah. Because yeah. you don't want to you don't want to miss when you're at Fort Indian Town and hit the barracks instead of you know <laughs> what you're aiming at. And then yes. when we were deployed, we were deployed as uh, MPs, and so we did like area security, convoy security, uh, patrols, road like watching the road stuff like that. And where were you deployed? So we started in Baghdad. Mm-hmm. Well, we started in Kuwait. You know, everyone goes to Kuwait first, and then, then you go. To, then we went to Baghdad for three months, and then we went to a town near Balad for the rest of the deployment. How was it, just in general? I mean, you don't have to go nuts. Well, general, but just, just in general. Um, you know, I had a really, I had a really great group of people I was with. Honestly, mm, that helps. My, my, my lieutenants were my lieutenants and captains were so good. One of them, you know, some of the most inspiring people I've ever met. And plus all the squad members I had were just incredible too. Well, in fact, my, my squad leader ended up being in uh, special forces, mm. some communications division, which is pretty cool. And I, and we all knew he was amazing when we were deployed, but you know, the temperature there was difficult to get around. We had highs and lows, which were extreme. We used to put thermometers in our vests and they would get to 170 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You you know, you're in a, you know, up armored Humvee with no air conditioning and it's 140 degrees out. So you get pretty hot. Yeah. And the days were long, you know, you'd wake up at four to start. I was a, I was a driver. So Mm -hmm. you'd wake up at four to start servicing the vehicles. You're out on the road by six. And then uh, usually you get to bed like, if you're lucky at 10 o'clock and you start it all over every day. But another one of the positives, though, is that you got some pretty nice days off. Every job you got was two weeks long and then you would rotate to a different job. And one of the rotations was free time. Mm. So there was literally uh, like every 12 weeks, you would have two weeks off where you would just do whatever you want around the barracks and stuff, which there wasn't a lot to do. But still, you get to decompress and relax for a while. So in that way, it was it was pretty nice too. Um, overall, I'd say it wasn't horrible. Um, and in fact, I enjoyed the really enjoyed the company uh, yeah. over there. Yeah, I'm I'm sure that made all the difference in the world. But what did you take away from it? You think 
um, you know, once you got back and just back into to regular civilian life, what did you, what do you think you took out of that um, in a positive way that you still carry with you to this day? You know, motivation is a big one. You're required to be very motivated. Uh, self-motivation is where, is where that, that comes from. So you, you, well, that's what they train you to be just self-motivated and teamwork. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people don't, I don't think a lot of people can really appreciate teamwork uh, the way that you do it in the military. I think I think folks that have, have been serious in sports mm-hmm. can appreciate it. But it's, uh, you know, folks that skip those kind of things, they don't really see what, what teamwork can be. Also, uh, respect. Going, growing up in Nanticoke, it was a very small town. Then you're thrown into the military with folks that, are from all kinds of different places. Like you, you know, I, I met people from all over the world yeah. when I was in the military and, and people that for, were from all kinds of different backgrounds mm-hmm. and, and you wouldn't believe how these backgrounds are not black and white. They're so, there's such a blend of different things. You just have a greater respect for humanity in general. When, yeah. Once you're in there. I agree a hundred percent having gone through the same thing. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. So yeah, you learn a lot. I mean, I guess we'll just leave it at that, right? You just learn a tremendous amount about yourself, the world, people, interaction, teamwork, attention to detail. All those things are are lessons you carry with you. You know, I don't care what service you're in. Um, you, you will likely carry with you till the day you die. So um Oh my goodness, yeah. yes. Yeah. And it's and it's good. It's a it's some you know, you could be a shining light in that aspect of you're doing well and uh People can see those attributes and maybe you can influence others to carry themselves in a, in a better way. And it's always one of the nice things about being a retired service member that mm-hmm. you, you occasionally see, you know, folks uh, around you uh, stepping up a little more when uh, when you push them. I'm trying to think here, there's no easy way to segue out of this, right? But but we'll try anyhow. <laughs> so uh, going from uh, military service to how did you ultimately find uh, FCI and then Amphenol? You know, that's one thing I always tell new engineers because engineers are not very social creatures. Networking is huge. Mm. I, almost every job I've ever had was through networking. Yeah. And I started this networking process by <laughs> getting kind of bamboozled into joining the IEEE club as a, as the treasurer, you know, they were offering free pizza and I showed up and <laughs> next thing I know I'm the IEEE treasurer. I'm like, okay. And then blame the pizza. Uh, similar to our last conversation, things weren't going well in the IEEE club. And yeah. I was like, I'm one of the officers. I'm not okay with this. So yeah. I asked the, I asked the president and stuff and they're, they were pretty much like, I don't know what to tell you. I don't really know what's going on either. So then I asked, uh, I asked the advisor, like, what, what exactly is going on here? And he, he said, let's take a walk. So <laughs> we took a walk and he he told me how, uh, what if this happened, that the IEEE president resigned? Would you be willing to sign up for, you know, possibly being the president? So I, I became the president and through becoming the president, uh, one of my club members said, hey, my boss at Tyco has an opening in the internship and how it works here is the intern, the current intern picks the next intern. Mm. So, and so he said, hey, uh, you know, if you want the job, you can have it. And I said, Oh, cool. And well, what is it? So the cable assemblies, I was like cable assemblies, well, that sounds easy. That's probably like soldering 
wires onto pieces of metal. I could right. Yeah. And, and, uh, it wasn't anything like that. Yeah. So when I got there, <laughs> I found it to be extremely interesting. So I worked at, I ended up turning a job down at Lockheed Martin as a systems engineer to be a development engineer at Tyco Electronics. And I did that for five years. I recognized that we were just completely under, like I say, funded maybe like we didn't have the tools we needed to do the job. And I started looking elsewhere trying, cause I knew I liked signal integrity, but I was kind of in this strange place of, I was doing signal integrity in a lab, but I wasn't really full-time SI and I, and I wanted more of the SI and less of the, the other stuff that I was doing. Mm -hmm. So the president that took over for me at school sent me a, me a message saying we have an opening for a cable assembly signal integrity engineer at FCI. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I will apply for that. So I applied and was fortunate enough to get that job. And so I, I worked at FCI and then I, you know, had one more absence at, at the company to go to the Siemens company in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And what I did there was I started their signal integrity, their whole, like they had nothing. So I, I built everything up SI wise from the ground there. I gave them their simulation tools, their lab automation, basic, just ba everything SI. I just developed, I developed everything for them there. And the good part about it was it was awesome. And then uh, I ran out of work <laughs> very soon. So I started doing a lot of uh, other development work there for about two years, heading into standards bodies. So I learned a lot about 112 and uh, other other things from the IEEE. At that time, I was finishing my master's. And when I was giving my thesis defense, my old boss was there. And he, he said, hey, would you like your job back? And felt like the right time to say, yeah, I think I, I, think I would because I wasn't being challenged anymore at the Siemens company. Yeah. And, I, and my management there agreed. I said, you know, this is a, a great job, but I honestly don't even think you need me anymore. Like I've worked my, I've done everything you could possibly want me to do. And your guys are set up really well for the future. And he's like, yeah, you know what? You're, I think you're right. Hmm. Um, and they, and we even hired a new SI guy that was very capable. Um, he was new, but he was a very fast learner. So, so then I, I went to back to Amphenol and, and, you know, developed XMX too. And here we are, here we'll we help are. develop it. You know, it's definitely was not just me. It was for a lot of people that, that did that product. Good. So when you're not working on these new products and, and uh, doing signal integrity engineering, what do you like to do in your free time? Free time. Well, I mean, most of it now is just my family. Yeah. My son, my son and daughter are both in soccer. That takes up a lot, you know, just, maintaining the house, getting them where they need to be. And when I'm not doing that thing, I like to do CrossFit a lot. That's been taking up a lot of my time. That's replaced jujitsu. When mm. the, when the pandemic hit, I was about a year deep into jujitsu and was really liking it, but I had to quit because you couldn't do jujitsu with a yeah. pandemic going on. So right. then I eventually found CrossFit and I really like the gym I'm at. Uh, I've been, yeah, I've been really enjoying that. And when I'm trying to do my tinkering stuff at home, my kids like little 3D printed things you can build. I mean, my end goal in that is that honestly kind of weird is to build pumps. I want to build water pumps so I can move water around on my property that I store in rain barrels, which I know sounds like a weird thing, but it's got this idea that I've been, I've had for a while. And <laughs> <Wow>. uh, <laughs> you are like your so uncle. I, 
And then I also, uh, I like to soup up my, my kids power wheels a lot. So I, I started that one where my dad found these, uh, old six volt power wheels that didn't work. And I ripped them apart and I changed them from single, single gear drive to double gear or single wheel to double wheel and six volt to 10 volt. And that worked really well till they blew up. And then, uh, <laughs> and then I, I found another way to make them work where, uh, I used an H bridge instead of just a switch, which was better. But I made the mistake of putting a turbo button on it that was unlimited. And so instead of, you know, me thinking the kids would drive it and then when they wanted a little boost, they would hit the turbo button. They just had the turbo button mashed the whole time. Yeah. And they and they did that until the until the motors ignited. And that was the end of that one. So I, I learned from that one when I moved to their 12 volt, I did basically the same thing except I put a 30 second limit on the, on the boost and I had an eight minute cooldown. And so now the, uh, it, it does not destroy itself, which is important. <laughs> and, uh, I'm trying to, uh, upgrade that to have longer battery life. And I don't want it to go any faster because I don't think it's safe. Like it, it's at a point where it's at the, the fastest speed it'll go. That's safe with plastic tires. Cause I already see, uh, some of my neighbors just hooked up drill batteries to their kids' power wheels and they're doing donuts and stuff with it. And I'm like, and I think, yeah, I, I don't, I think it's cool, but it's going to break and the kids might get hurt in the process. So I don't yeah. want, I'm really in totally, I don't, don't want to go down there, but instead what I want to do is try to add some smarts to it. Since the thing uses an H bridge and an Arduino already, I eventually want to make this thing like an RC car. Yeah. So, so it's not really difficult to put in like a servo for, uh, for the direction, but I've never hooked up an RC controller to an Arduino. So that's like going to be the big thing. Once I can make those communicate, then it's going to be easy peasy. I'm going to have a, an RC, a little RC uh, power wheel that maybe will have like other things on it, like, you know, sonar sensing or, oh my goodness. or lane, lane detection. So I can see now the concern over them driving these around in plastic yeah. wheels and oh, just, yeah, yeah there, that must be crazy. The one I said that was six volts, literally my, they would, my kids, I always test stuff. You'd be amazed how kids like to test things until they fail. Yeah. And they had, they would drive it and it would be fast and then they would have their friend go on with them and then that would be fine. And then they'd have their friend and their sister go on with them Yeah. until like I had four people on this six volt power wheel Jeez. going up a hill somehow still working. And I'm just like, I can't believe this thing didn't break yet. Yeah. But yeah. They, <laughs> yeah. It, it can get dangerous. Yeah. I would say so. You're going to have to register it and you put yeah, seatbelts right. in get there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So listen, we'll, we'll wrap up with this then. If I put you on a deserted island by yourself, unfortunately, no uh, oscilloscopes, no eight bridges or, or Arduinos or, or servos, servos or anything like that, but just some, some relaxation time for a bit. And I said, you can bring with you, Jason, one album, one book, and one movie. We'll start with an album. What album would you bring with you? Probably Bull Beats, uh, one of Bull Beats albums. I want to say, uh, I don't remember the names of my, I, I, I go by the album covers now cause it's, you know, YouTube music, Yeah, <laughs> but it's the, it's like outlaw gentleman, I think would be the one that I would pick. Yeah. I like that one. Either that or their latest, their latest album. 
forget the name of it, but it's pretty good. One that has the Metallica Don't Tread on Me remake. Okay. I like so, that band a lot. So something that kicks, kicks a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's really yeah. Nice nice lyrics, nice fast paced music. Wakes you up, gives you a little energy. Okay. How about a book? <sighs> My favorite book. You know, I had this it's this might be cheating, but I had this compilation book of uh, H.G. Wells' greatest books. Okay. No, it's not cheating. So it was like a tome. Yeah. And it had uh, The Time Machine, The Invisible Man. Right. 20,000 Leagues, all that. Yeah, 20,000 Leagues. Uh, those H.G. Wells, the way he writes is so good. <laughs> it, I mean, it's a little bit awkward to read anymore because the English is different now. Yeah. But but the, the way that he paints a picture, to me, hasn't really been recreated as far as I you know, if I read, I mean, Dan Brown was pretty good at it, in my opinion, but, but HG Wells really nailed it with his, with his books. That makes sense too, coming from an engineer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? yeah, I, yeah. I guess so. Yeah. Cause he, he, and he, one of the amazing things is he has physical, physical descriptions of things in his books that are accurate. Yeah. Like not, not trivial topics like right. index of refraction in the invisible man. He, re, he talks about it and what he says makes perfect sense. And that just blows my mind when I, when I'm like, wow, this guy really knew his stuff when he was writing this. Yeah. So that, this is not surprising then. So uh, last one, how about a movie? Probably uh, either Forrest Gump or the matrix. Okay. Probably Forrest Gump. Okay. So Forrest Gump it is. I love that movie. Yeah. No, so it's good. a great movie. Yeah. Tom Hanks, always amazing. So, well, listen, Jason, this has been a really engaging uh, conversation. I've, I've actually learned a lot, so I appreciate it, and, and thank you for doing this today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it, too. It's nice talking to you.